morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Grace Point, wherever you are in the world, um, especially if you are here for the very first time. We are here, uh, thrilled to have you with us this morning. Today, we're continuing our series around the question, what is progressive Christianity? Next week, we're going to be uh, talking about the relationship between progressive Christianity and other religious traditions, and we're going to have Brian McLaren with us. Brian has meant so much to so many of us, and he's been central to my own sort of journey of, uh, of becoming a, a new, different kind of Christian over these last um, 20 years. And I'm so grateful for him. Uh, I'll tell you this, I've heard the, um, the sermon he's going to give next week, and it is just incredible. So make sure that you're uh, with us for that. You can also participate in our book giveaway on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter um, by going and liking and sharing the post about um, the giveaway. So uh, please do that. Um, today, though, I want to focus on um, the sacraments, things like Eucharist and baptism, and practices, things like prayer, gathering together, study of scripture, solitude, um, Sabbath, fasting, feasting, those kind of things. Now, you can breathe easy. I'm not going to be going in-depth in all of them. I want to take more of a 36,000 feet view, sort of a, a macro view of sacraments and practices. And my hope is, as we take that macro view and we see sort of the landscape and talk about what maybe a sacrament and a practice are or can be, that it'll, you'll sort of begin to make those connections and see those possibilities at sort of the ground micro level. So first, what role do sacraments and practices play when seen through a progressive Christian lens? I think we should begin with that word sacrament. A sacrament is typically thought of as something that is a means of grace, which means it's a channel through which grace comes to us or is experienced by us. And for others, uh, the sacraments are a symbol of a larger spiritual reality. Uh, some people have called sacraments thin places, where the line between the divine and the world, the human world, becomes permeable in some way. So we do this ritual, we take some bread and some wine, or we, we immerse ourselves in a pool, or we're immersed in a pool of water, and somehow that awakens us to the presence of God. I think an unintentional side effect of this understanding is that it teaches us to divide the world up, assigning certain people in places uh, as being sacred, and other people in places as being profane. We do this all the time with all sorts of things. We just don't use the exact verbiage. So we might say something is special or extraordinary and that other things are mundane and ordinary. Some things, some people, some spaces, some items um, have a significant weight, while others maybe are just sort of we consider average or non-significant. Maybe it's a set of dishes that only come out on an extra special occasion, or it's a bottle of wine that could only be uncorked under the most significant of celebrations. When I was a kid, we had, I had a, some family members who had a living room in their house that was full of furniture that, if I'm remembering, was all wrapped in plastic and no one was allowed to go in and sit on. I wasn't even allowed to set foot on the carpet, um, right? We've done this in so many ways in the world of religion. We take a building, we slap a cross on it, we call it God's house, and suddenly this space is somehow more sacred than other spaces, like maybe the grocery store. Have you ever heard somebody say, don't do that, you're in church? Has anybody ever heard that or said that? I'm sure we've all heard it. I'm sure most of us, many of us at least, have said it. Like that what you're doing would be appropriate at Target, but it wouldn't be appropriate at church. That's a weird sort of, uh, it's a weird sort of way to frame the world. Um, is that how things actually work? Are there really sacred Places and people that are more somehow infused with the divine, with God, than other places? Are some places 
just God forsaken, some people just God forsaken. So you have sort of places where you really experience God and then places where God is just sort of absent in some way. There are two stories for me when I think about this idea of sacred and secular or, or holy and not holy or profane. Um, the, the first story, there are two, two stories, both from the Hebrew scriptures. The first story um, is about a, a man named Jacob who is on the run from his brother Esau. So Jacob is, this, is sort of a trickster character, and he ends up stealing Esau's blessing and Esau's birthright. And he has to leave town because after he steals Esau's blessing from their father Isaac, He's told Esau is going to kill him, and so he's got to get out of town, and he heads for his uncle's house. And on this journey Jacob is taking, he stops at a it, sort of, an, it says a certain place, which has this sort of idea of a, a nondescript, non, maybe a place where you wouldn't expect something to happen. And he has a dream. And more than a dream, it was probably, we would say, it's something like a vision. So it's in Genesis 28. I want to read it to you. Jacob reached a certain place and spent the night there. When the sun had set, he took one of the stones at that place and put it near his head. Then he lay down there. He dreamed and saw a raised staircase, its foundation on earth and its top touching the sky. And God's messengers were ascending and descending on it. Suddenly, the Lord was standing on it and saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will become like the dust of the earth. You will spread out east, west, east, north, and south. Every family of earth will be blessed because of you and your descendants. I am with you now, and I will protect you everywhere you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done everything that I have promised you. Now, before we finish this text, and this is a pretty powerful moment, and it reflects some of the ancient ways of understanding the world. Gods were very territorial. And what happens for Jacob in this dream is this particular understanding of God, the, the character God in this story says, you know what, I'm not actually going to be bound by geography the way you think. You're going to go on this journey, and I'm going to go with you, and I'm going to bring you back. Right? This is not just sort of one of those, you leave and leave this particular boundary, and I leave you. So this is a really interesting leap forward in the understanding of what God might be. And at the end of all of this, this is what happens. When Jacob woke from his sleep, he thought to himself, the Lord is definitely in this place. I didn't know it. Right, there's so much going on in this story, but it's Jacob's response here that I want to focus on. He wakes up from the sleep, from this vision, and he doesn't say, wow, I went to sleep and God showed up. Right? That's a common thing I've heard all of my life among Christians. We, you have a powerful church service, a powerful gathering, and we assume it's because for whatever reason, God finally showed up. Maybe we had the guitars you know, turned up to the right decibel, maybe maybe the fog machine was producing just the right amount of fog and the lights were doing just the right amount of thing or whatever. Maybe, maybe we just all had prayed really hard beforehand, but for some reason we got together in the same room and something incredible happens. It, we felt it, right? It wasn't just sort of a, a, a typical thing, like something happened. God finally showed up. Um, and I think sometimes my response wants to be, well, better late than never, I guess. Um, but, but Jacob wakes up from his sleep, and he also wakes up from another kind of sleep. So he's physically asleep, but he's also been asleep in another way. He becomes, he wakes up and he, he doesn't say God showed up. He wakes up and he says, God was in this place, and I didn't know it. I was unaware. God was here. 
And it took this moment of, of opening my eyes through, the, through going to sleep. I finally woke up in a way. And here's the thing. God doesn't show up ever. God never shows up. In this story, Jacob shows up. And sometimes in our story, we show up. It's never that God has been off on a journey and suddenly remembered to stop by. It's always been our awareness. It's always been our perception. The other story, briefly, is the story of the burning bush from Exodus chapter 3, where Moses walks by a bush that is aflame but not consumed, and his curiosity gets the better of him, and he goes over to see why this bush is on fire, but it doesn't burn up. And when he does so, he takes off his shoes because from within the bush, this voice of God speaks and says, take off your shoes, the ground is holy. But over the ages, the question has come up again and again, was the ground always holy? Was Moses just waking up to something that had always been true? It wasn't something new that was happening at the burning bush. Moses, I mean, how many times had Moses walked by with his flock, with his father-in-law's flock? How many times had he walked by this exact spot? And this time he has eyes to see, he's attuned, he's aware, and he gets drafted into the, the work of liberation and rescue. See, I think that sacraments are just that. They are rituals and experiences that call us to wake up. They're intended to open us up to new levels of awareness, not to something that's just becoming true. It's about waking us up to what has always been true. And if that's actually how it works, then all ground is holy ground. And everything, every person, every place, everything is potentially a sacrament. It's sacramental. That's why when we celebrate the Eucharist, we use ordinary things. We use bread and wine. And actually, when we're in person, um, the way we typically do that, we offer uh, bread, gluten-free crackers, wine, and grape juice, right? We have all, we have the smorgasbord of options. And the reality is those are all really ordinary things. They're not extraordinary, but it's somehow through the ordinary that we are given eyes to see the extraordinary. It's through the simple things of life, bread, wine, water, that we're invited to experience something so extraordinary. But it's not outside of it. It's not outside of the ordinary. I've shared this quote before, but it's so insightful from Frederick Buechner. He says, a sacrament is when something holy happens. It is transparent time, time which you can see through to something deep inside of time. Needless to say, church isn't the only place where the holy happens. And I think for most of us, we would say, yeah, that's true. It hasn't, it's not just at this particular place, at this particular time, on this particular day of the week that something holy happens, that something extraordinary happens. Um, he says sacramental moments can occur at any moment, any place, and to anybody. And that's really good news. Watching something get born, a high school graduation. I haven't gotten there with high school graduations yet. Somebody coming to see you when you're sick, a meal with people you love, looking into a stranger's eyes and finding out they're not a stranger, if we weren't blind as bats, we would see that life itself is sacramental. Life itself is inviting us to see the extraordinary reality of everything. There is nothing that is mundane. There is nothing that is just sort of God forsaken and, and simple and non Everything is infused with the possibility of a sacred. The problem is, is our awareness of that reality.
I mean, how many of us have ever sat around the table with somebody and we're sharing ordinary food, ordinary drink, and yet something is happening in that moment that seems so beyond the ordinary? I think that's what sacraments can do. They're these ordinary elements that invite us to see that everything is extraordinary. And now let's turn to practices. And sometimes these get called spiritual disciplines, which doesn't sound really fun. Um, anything with the word discipline in it can sound, um, especially to an Enneagram 7, can sound a little off-putting. But the reality is spiritual disciplines are, are these things Christians have used for generations that um, serve a specific purpose. And I love how um, Brian McLaren, I guess next week, he has this fantastic book called Finding Our Way Again, which is all about this idea of spiritual practice. And here's what he says. He says, spiritual practices are actions within our power that help us become the kinds of people who can do things currently beyond our power. Spiritual practices are actions within our power that help us become the kinds of people who can do things that currently aren't in our power. We can think of it like a kind of exercise, right? We're sort of developing some spiritual muscles. We, we don't just get up off the couch and run a marathon, right? We begin maybe by running a half a, mile, a quarter mile, a half a mile, uh, or a mile, and we build up that capacity over time. I'll, I'll never forget... Um, probably, you know, 12 years ago, uh, the, the church I was pastoring, we entered into a um, church softball league with some other churches. And, and what we didn't know is that all these other churches had teams that practiced basically year round, took it very seriously. We literally got up off the couch one Saturday and drove to the game. Uh, the game ended in three innings and we got beat 30 to nothing. It was humiliating. And we're, we're sitting around. We went for ice cream after because that's what you do when you get beat 30 to nothing in three innings. And we're, we're having ice cream. And one of, one of my friends looks up and says, we just got up off the couch and thought we could do this. <laughs> right? Like we just thought, oh, yeah, why can't we? The reality is that sometimes, <laughs> sometimes things take practice. And, and that's true spiritually, I think, too. I think one of the ways we've tended to miss the mark on this is that many of us inherited an assumption that turns spiritual practices into another transactional system. That if I pray, if I read the Bible, if I go to church, if, I sh- if I'm generous, if I live my life that way, then perhaps that will open God up to us and that God will do what we need or want God to do, right? As if, as if it's almost like God wants to see if we're serious. So before God will be on our side and do our thing, God wants to see, like, have you, it's sort of like what happens, you know, um, at, at school right now. Like our oldest is in school, his school, they have to get so many minutes of uh, reading in every week and all this. So it's almost like we're, we're saying, oh, well, God wants to check how many minutes you've had reading the Bible or how many minutes you've had in prayer or how, how many people you've been kind to. And that if you do all these sorts of things, it builds up and then God will do what you want God to do. But what if that's not how it works? What if spiritual practices that we engage in aren't to open God to us? Like we're not trying to get God to look at us favorably. What if we're not trying to do all of these things to say, God, look, we're really, really serious. Please be on our side. Please do something for us. Please look at us. What if spiritual practices, the whole point, isn't to open God to us? What if the whole point is to open us to God? What if spiritual practices are our stairway stretching to the heavens? What if spiritual practices are our burning bush that is is on fire but not consumed, piquing our curiosity to go over and see what's happening? What if the point isn't about checking off the boxes, but about creating a growing awareness of our connection to God? We talked about a few weeks ago, our inherent union with God. 
What if spiritual practices are about creating an awareness of that connection and an increasing commitment to join in on the work of healing and transformation and loving the world? What if that's what it's about? Not getting God to do our, not making God aware of us and our need. What, what if spiritual practices are about opening us up to the God who is always here? Right? To the God who never left. To the God in whom we live, move, and exist. Let's just for a brief example, let's take the idea of prayer, which we've talked about a couple times over the last couple of years. And I'd invite you to the podcast if you're interested in um, hearing more of how we've approached that. But what if prayer isn't just a cop out from engaging in the world and the needs around us? Now, I know that sounds really harsh, but how, how many how many of us have ever said, I'll pray for you? And really, we, what we mean is this is an awkward social encounter. I'll tell you I'll pray for you. But, but I bet there are times we haven't done that. So what if prayer isn't just this sort of, or what if prayer isn't the way to say, you know what, um, there are a lot of really pressing needs in the world, but if I were to actually engage in doing something about those, it would make my life more uncomfortable. So let's just pray about it. And prayer sort of becomes this cop-out. What if prayer became the opposite? What if prayer became a reminder that we can actually make a difference in the lives of other human beings in the world? And just to summarize a statement from Pope Francis, you pray for a hungry person, then you feed them. That's how prayer works. Right? Prayer is not a substitute for action. It's almost sort of building up the spiritual and physical muscle to go do the action. From, from this lens, anything that opens us up to God, so what it means to be fully and flourishingly human is a spiritual practice. Not just maybe the things you hear about in church, right? But there, like, there are so anything that opens us up and reminds us that we are connected and in union with God and that there is a world around us that God deeply loves, that we are invited to engage, uh, participate in, love and, and in compassion, actually meet the needs of. Like that is what a spiritual practice is doing. I love Mary Oliver so much. In her poem, Praying, she says this, it doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a few small stones. Just pay attention and patch a few words together and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but a doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. For so many of us who turn everything into a competition, I love that she reminds us, listen, this, this whole thing we're invited to, this is not about having the right words or a bunch of words. This is, it's not about having a, a muse that is, you know, terribly, it doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could just be some weeds in a parking lot. And just try to find some words if you can, but just the point is being brought into this space where another voice can speak. If we can make this shift, if we can reframe our understanding of spiritual practices from things we, we do to get God's attention, right? To things that get our attention, that make us more aware and open to God and to the work before us in the world. Can you imagine what that would mean? Can you imagine what that would mean for the world if, if people who, who claim to be followers of Jesus became so aware of their connection to Jesus, to the divine, that it led us out into the world to live in really specific and, and, and transformative ways. But can you imagine also the impact that would have on us? Can you imagine the impact that would have on the kind of humans that we would become in the world? Can you imagine what kind of world we could build together if we, if we stopped like this whole transactional process of trying to get God's attention and get God on our side instead of realizing we are living, moving, and existing in God and what, who needs to be brought to attention isn't God, but it is us. 
and that we engage in practices and sacraments that seek to open us up to the divine. And in doing so, they open us up to ourselves and they open us up to each other and they open us up to the world around us. And that's how the world, I think, gets better. It's as St. Augustine said, without God, we cannot, but without us, God will not. We have a role to play. There is no better world coming without our participation in bringing it into existence. And maybe spiritual practices, maybe, maybe the point of, of having a sacramental imagination, maybe the point of all of that is to make us aware of our opportunity and role and invitation to bring that better world into existence.